0: Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Let's turn to Acts 13. We're going to look at uh, verses 1-12 through 12 as we continue in our series. Watch me uh, pull a Father's Day message out of uh, Acts 13. I'd like to read it, reading from the New International Version. <clears throat> In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the Word of God. But Lamus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Lamas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. I'd like to draw your attention to verse 10, and particularly the words, you will not stop, and I'm going to render this quite literally so that we can refer to the Old Testament where it originates, but you will not stop from making crooked the straight paths of the Lord, will you? I think in the NIV we read, um, you will never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. This really tells me that everything that Paul and Barnabas are doing, they see in in a way as a fulfillment of a grand theme in the Old Testament going all the way back to the prophecy of Isaiah. Chapter 40, verse 3 in particular, we find this wording, this concept. Isaiah 40 through 55 is often called the gospel of the Old Testament and the influence of... uh, uh, this passage and these chapters on the New Testament is, uh, is grand indeed. But it opens in chapter 40 with God announcing that uh, uh, forgiveness is now available to His people. And He Himself is coming. And the prophet announces uh, that the Lord is coming and calls the people to make straight, The way of the Lord. This theme is is picked up. This idea that that God is coming and we are to make ready for His coming. Um, A readiness which scholars realize is something that certainly takes place in the heart, but on the stage of history as well. And in Malachi, this prophetic theme is picked up. And in chapter 3, verse 1, a messenger is coming who will make straight the path or make ready the path of the Lord. Well, the New Testament, the Gospels are of one mind that this is John the Baptist, who, like Elijah, is preparing the way of the Lord, Jesus Christ, And this theme now is carried over once Jesus has ascended and poured out his Holy Spirit upon his church. The church is continuing the life and ministry. In fact, Jesus is working in his people through the Holy Spirit, and it's a continuation of this work. And Paul and Barnabas here, we are reading of the first endeavor, the conscious, planned endeavor implemented by the Holy Spirit, as we read, but to reach beyond and fulfill Acts chapter 1-8 to reach the ends of the earth to go beyond the Jews to reach out to the Gentiles and so Paul we saw even back in chapter 9 that associated with his conversion was his calling his commission to to be a light to the Gentiles to bring the Lord to the Gentiles to stand four kings and governors. And and now he and Barnabas are set apart and they're setting out. But the fact that he says to Bar-Jesus, will you never stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord or ways of the Lord? It tells me that the mindset is that they who are taking the gospel to Cyprus now and on this first missionary endeavor, they are making straight the way of the Lord. And that's something we're all involved in. That's something we're all heir to. And that's something I want us to appreciate real, right here in, in very practical terms. Um, because it's here that we see Jesus' people make straight the way of the Lord. I, I really... Um, I think Paul, everything that he says to Bar-Jesus in verse 10 is recognizing that this man... Now, this man is a Jew. The very fact that he bears the name Bar-Jesus. Jesus is Greek for Yeshua in the Old Testament, which is Joshua. The Lord saves. That's what Joshua means. The Lord saves or delivers. And that's the name of Jesus. So lots of Jewish boys were named Yeshua or Joshua. This is Bar, which is Aramaic, son of Yeshua or Jesus. And I think the very fact that Paul calls him a son not of Yeshua, but a son of the devil, the slanderer, the one who opposes, the one who challenges, the one who twists and perverts, that he says what you're doing is right in line with this spiritual opposition to the truth and the reality of what God is doing, what we've come here to do. You may have noticed as we read this that it was Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. Who's the proconsul? The proconsul is the political power of the Roman Empire representing the Senate on Cyprus. He's the He's the top dude. And he hears about Barnabas and Saul. He says, I want an audience. I want to hear what this is all about. I want to hear from you. But when they arrive and the order is significant, who do they meet? Bar Jesus. And he is opposing, we're told. What they've come here to talk about, to represent Jesus, to, as it were, make straight the way of the Lord, to continue on. What, uh, what every believer is a part of is making straight the way of the Lord. Well, where does this all begin? It begins not only with the sense, the mindset and, and by the way, this bar Jesus is a Jew. He would know well. I mean, I, he would not miss the wording. He would not miss the fact that he is now opposing what goes all the way back to Isaiah and the connection that Paul is making with what they themselves are involved in. I think that was a, it. really jerked him into reality. I mean, sometimes we kind of stray. Jews did that. Christians do that. I've run into lots of Christians. I've looked in the mirror too, and I've seen a guy who's strayed along the way. That's our humanness. This guy strayed a long way. I'll talk about him maybe in just a moment. But the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes we get so comfy in the world and we, we kind of dabble and we intermix our faith with all things secular and worldly. And that's what Bar-Jesus has done. And when Paul confronts him and, and really puts his finger on this guy, I'll bet he was just, you know, like that dream where you are in school and you realize you're, you don't have any pants or a dress on or something. You know, it's just all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, the reality of it is shocking. I think he was jerked into reality by, by Paul when Paul addressed him this way. And he said, now the hand of God, which is the active power of God, the hand of God is against you. And you'll recall that we're told Paul was full of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want us to understand about Paul, is that Paul, Barnabas, all believers are to be making straight the way of the Lord. But what we see here that is characteristic of Paul, and we can include Barnabas, we see it right from the outset of the chapter, are things that characterize What they do when they make straight the way of the Lord or basically advance the Lord, promote the Lord, glorify the Lord, elevate and lift His reputation among others. That's very common. That's what we're all supposed to be about. But they do it, and I want us to see this, in the power of the Spirit. We see that in verses 1-6. through They do it as people of influence. We don't often think of ourselves as people of influence. But when we represent the Lord and we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we find ourselves in positions of influence. And we see that of Barnabas and Paul here. I mean, they're face-to-face with people of great influence here. And for the promotion, if you will, or the advance of Jesus Christ, Martin Luther... Who started, or was the spark for the Reformation? Martin Luther had a, a saying, a dictum, "Vas Christum tribet," whatever promotes or advances Christ. And I want to just talk about these things because, when we read this, I think we we think, "Wow, that was way back then, and it was so different." and You know, it starts off right in verse 1, telling us that these elders of the church, this is the church staff of Antioch. And uh, these men are mentioned. These men are regular guys. I mean, there's Barnabas, he's a native of Cyprus, but they're in Antioch at this point. And uh, Simeon, a black man, niger means black in Latin, Lucius is another Gentile from Cyrena, which is in North Africa. He, too, may have been very dark-skinned. Manaan was a, one would infer from the Greek characterization of his relationship to the house of Herod, that maybe he was, he was actually raised in the house of Herod and, and grew up with, uh, with Herod the, the Tetrarch as a young boy. And now he's come to Christ, and he's involved in what's going on in Antioch. And then there's there's this guy named Saul who was converted. He was a persecutor. He was a Pharisee, a teacher of Judaism. And now he's living for Christ. Now, What I'm trying to say is, when you look at this group of guys, these elders of this church, it's not they that make them reputable and suited, because... They're called prophets and teachers. Those are gift of the sp- Spirit. I mean, as the Spirit is larger in any believer, those gifts are going to flourish. The fruit of the Spirit is going to flourish. And when we think of a prophet, we think of you know, somebody maybe uh, in a robe. He raises a staff. He predicts of the future. But in the New Testament, prophets are proclaimers. They're not so much foretellers as forthtellers. Of God's Word. And I, hear, I see here in the tandem use of pro- prophet and teacher, these guys are all about telling others about Jesus Christ, either within a, the setting of, of rearing people in the basics of the faith or going beyond their borders to reach out and tell others who have never heard of Jesus Christ, prophets and teachers. And they're worshiping, we're told in verse 2. That's what the they means. And in conjunction with worship is the word fasting. And fasting tells us something about their worship because whenever there's fasting, you're breaking the routine for concentrated, sincere interest in the Lord. We engage in that. This is motivated by their devotion and desire to serve the Lord. That's very clear. But we're motivated sometimes just by our own situation. We can be in some dire strait or something just... We want life to just flow along ever so smoothly without any hitches or interruptions. We don't even want to have to paddle that boat. We don't even want to have to steer it. And when things get rocky, sometimes then we set aside, we break our routine and we really concentrate on the Lord. We turn to him, we devote ourselves to him. And you see, that's the same kind of setting here, maybe a slightly different motivation. And it's in that setting that the Spirit shows up. Holy Spirit is really the power of our Christian lives. Acts makes that, puts that in the not only just the context of history, but God's history. It's the outpouring of the presence of Jesus Christ on our lives. That's why Paul says, don't quench or grieve. Those are not synonyms. I mean, in two different places, he makes specific mention in Ephesians 4:30 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Don't grieve or quench. In other words, We're to be open to the influence. There should be a flow, so to speak, between the leading and the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But so much gets in the way. And even in this situation, they are clearly fasting and seeking the Lord. And the Spirit shows up. And they all realize, and it says, "...the Holy Spirit said..." set apart now's the time and so they in consensus confirm they detect as we do that here if we don't have a consensus that is a meeting of the minds on the board of elders we postpone that and continue to pray and seek god it's, we don't vote. This isn't. We're not. About, this isn't about representatives and politics. This is about doing the Lord's will, and that's what we're committed to. But when we have God's leading, there's there's that ratification, that recognition, identification, and affirmation and support of this is what the Lord wants us to do. And when we have that common heart, then we move forward. That's what they did. Can you imagine that sense, how compelling it must have been? That's something I think we want in our Christian lives. I I admit that sometimes I just want the Spirit to come over me in such powerful, powerful ways that I'm just, you know, there's just no mistaking it. I mean, I'm just like on fire or effervescent. You know, we want want that power to show up because then it's going to reinforce our faith. There's not going to be any doubt. There's not going to be any inner mixture in our mind or confusion or reservation that maybe this is a human thing that's moving this along. But it's natural. I mean, when they set off, and, and you, you see this in verses 3 through 6. I mean, the Spirit didn't just pop them over to Cyprus. They had to walk miles to Seleucia. And there they had to pay a fare, human money, to catch a boat. I mean, and then we're told when they got to the island that they. They started in the synagogues. They 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 didn't go to the toughest place. They, so to speak, started with the churches. Things, you know, should start at home. Just as it had started in their hearts, then they started where, where God was already planted in the synagogues. And that was the pattern, by the way, of Paul, Paul's ministry. And you recall, for example, from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 to the Jew first and then the the Greek or the Gentile. See, and that's the pattern here. They go to the synagogue. But we're not told. Maybe Luke just didn't narrate it, but he didn't tell us of any great response. And then it says they worked their way all the way through the island. Well, they aren't just walking. They're telling others about Christ. But Luke sums up their entire ministry in less than a verse. And then they get to Paphos. And why is Paphos important? It's on the very other end, the very western end of the island. And that's where the proconsul is seated. The most powerful, he's like the governor, he runs the show on Cyprus. And so I, I, I look at this and I see this whole symptom, and I thought, this is just so, so common to our human experience, isn't it? I mean, we kind of think we'll walk above the earth or walk on the water or not have to face difficulties. But having spent all this time in synagogues, working their way across the island, telling others about Christ, making straight the way of the Lord. There's nothing that Luke mentions until they get to Paphos. And then what do they hit? Opposition. And this is so much like our human life. And I wouldn't doubt that there weren't moments that they thought about the the exhilaration of the confirmation of what the Spirit of God wanted them to do in launching this thing. And along the way, it's just so human and routine. And it seems so unblessed. And yet that's so true to our experience. I just finished a book yesterday. I've got to read this book. At the Foot of the Snows by David Waters with two T's. I don't see you writing that down. <laughs> Great book. David Waters and his wife of a few years, he had a four-year-old and a seven-month-old child. They were committed. They were working with... Um, <laughs> Sorry, brain freeze. Anyway, uh they work for the Summer Institute of Linguistics, which is not what I was thinking. Uh they work for a larger uh that's just a wing of a larger organization that's committed to the to the production, dissemination, translation of the scriptures. Anyway, uh, Summer Institute of Linguistics is recognized and valued around the world, no matter where you're coming from. They're, they're some of the top linguistics linguists in the whole field. Anyway, David Waters was following the lead and, and goes to the Himalaya, to Nepal, and, and where they, they generally speak Nepali, but there are these, these people groups deep in that, they have language which is not like Nepali, and it's a distinct people group and language that and they have no writings and and their language has never been documented i mean if they if the, if, the, if these small group of people were to die, you'd never know their language existed except maybe some faint records. There was nothing there's no dictionaries, there's nothing written and so in nineteen sixty nine he went to the Himalaya. And it's an amazing story about how he made his way back in there all on foot. Um, in fact, it was so treacherous at one point no trekkers would even take them. They decided to go ahead. They they thought it would be impassable and it would have been except for these strange tracks that they followed through the snow. He called them angel tracks. It was the strangest thing. They just kept showing up and guiding them. Made me think of the Holy Spirit guiding them. They would lose sight of it and they would never have made it. No no Sherpa, no guide would have even taken them. The people said it's impossible to go, and they got their way back in there. And in this very ro- remote place, they went to this village, spent months there. And be- just before, he had to get out and then would come back. And they were there for years, in and out, living amongst them. His wife, too, with their two little ones. Um, he, he, And these were the... Um, uh, the Com Magar, anyway, work, working among them, he was looking for someone who could translate with him. Who could? I mean, he's documenting these words and sounds and stuff. But he had been praying, and there, his time was up. And anyway, he he felt the voice of in his head as he approached this village. There was a man standing off by himself. That's the man. That's the man. Pick him. I know. I've had that happen, haven't you? I know what I do with those things. <laughs> Silly me. What, why do I talk to myself that way? But David Waters thought that was the leading of God, and so he approached the man and he said, I want you to come with me. And making a long story short, God had been working in that man's heart. In fact, he had been a Gurkha. As a young boy, he would left those very people, that remote people, run away with a friend when they were just, you know, 1516 ended up in india joined the gurkhas fought for the british in the world in world war 2 and he knew english and he'd even heard of jesus he was the only one in his village who had heard of jesus and he worked as a translator with david waters for 6 years and david waters and his wife un- Incredible obstacles and in opposition and doubt along the way, thinking, Have we come all this way, given our lives for this? Just is it enough? Yes, it is. Just to translate it for this one man, Hasta Ram. That's all the motivation that they could have. Nothing else was happening. And he was growing in his faith as they worked through first the parables and then other parts of the gospels. Six years. Six years living among them when Haster Ram and three men came to him one day in 1976 and they said, We want to be baptized. Hasta Ram had been talking to those three men. Now four men wanted to be baptized. And out of that baptism, they brought their wives. It was so moving that first service when they gathered. You'd have to know about this people and their culture, but Hastaram said he wanted to tell the people who had gathered in this little hut, we have come to meet God. This isn't a festival. We're not here to drink and revel, party and dance. We have come to meet God. And they read God's Word that they themselves had translated. They heard the Word of God in their own language. And people asked, where do we go to listen to God's talk in a book? And after much opposition and hardship, but being faithful to following the Spirit, people started to come to Christ. But they faced persecution and opposition. It was illegal to believe in Christianity. Many were jailed. First seven, then more. At one point, 58 from the village were marched, and for them to be marched to a jail by police escort, they had to walk for days in the cold, over mountains. And they would pass through other villages, and the people in the other villages would say, where are you going? And with joy, they would exclaim, we're off to stand before governors and kings for Christ's sake, as a testimony to them. You know why there's hardship and opposition, even when we're following the Spirit and walking in His power? Because the world is opposed. The world is in difficult straits. And the gospel, although liberating, is a challenge to what people know. And we encounter that opposition and that hardship as we make straight the way of the Lord. Corrie Ten Boom would never have suffered Ravensbrück concentration camp if she and her family hadn't chosen to serve Christ by sheltering Jews from the Nazis. G. Campbell Morgan, he was a pastor. You'd think a pastor would have it easy, but he chose to serve at Westminster Chapel, which at the time was the white elephant of congregationalism. I mean, lots of religion, but not a living faith in Jesus Christ. And he wrote, in those two years I've known more of visions fading into mirages, of purposes failing of fulfillment of things of strength crumbling away in weakness than ever in my life before. But you see, when we're led by the Spirit, we are also people of influence because we stand for the Lord. And we really see that. Saul, Paul, Barnabas, before the proconsul, being opposed by another man of considerable influence bar Jesus. Yes, he was a magician. And yes, uh, he was involved probably in astronomy and uh, astrology, reading of the stars. That's not uncommon. A lot of emperors had astrologers, so to speak, in their cabinet or on their staff as a part of their entourage. Some wouldn't even hardly take a step without consulting them on all matters. And here is Bar-Jesus, and he opposes what's going on. Paul, in the power of the Spirit, by the way, when it says he's blinded, that's not only reflective of Paul's own experience, in his past, when he opposed the Lord. And it's almost merciful, it's for a time, it's to teach him, but the fact of the matter is is that blinding, that misting, in fact it says that he groped after someone to lead him. The very same word used of Paul back in Acts chapter 9, but the fact of the matter is is that they use their eyes to read the stars. And the fact that the sun is going to be blinded is a, is a chief indicator of, uh, of his reliance. But you see, as people of influence... Sometimes in their midst, we lose sight unless we're really committed and realize that our influence in this world is the influence of the one we represent, the Lord. Can you imagine, say, for example, Billy Graham, or if you don't know who Billy Graham is, how about Rick Warren? Or some of you, like Beth Moore. Someone of of some notable Christian leadership being asked to the White House. It's happened many times before in different presidencies. But you know, when you get there and you're hobnobbing with, with all these people, you, could, you know, people of influence, uh, uh, sometimes we can become starstruck. Sometimes that happens at school, you know. Uh, maybe someone of, of higher rank shows interest in us, and so we kind of play down the fact that we're a Christian. We don't want our Christian commitment to get in the way of our newfound popularity and acceptance into these circles. And that can happen to others. It could have happened to Paul and Barnabas in the presence of the proconsul I mean, they could have played down their Christian allegiance, but they knew that they were there in the first place because of what Jesus had done in their lives. Don't ever lose sight of what the grace of God has done in your life. Don't ever become ashamed of what Jesus Christ has done in your life, who He means, and His power, and who He really is. You may stand in front of proconsuls or people of some rank in the eyes of this world system, but don't ever let it confuse you about the reality of who is the Lord and King of Kings. There is a cost to sincere service for Christ. If we never share our faith, we'll never look like a fool. Never stand, if we never stand for righteousness on a social issue, we'll never be called a prig. If we never practice consistent honesty in business, we'll never lose the trade of a not-so-honest associate. If we never reach out to the needy, we'll never be taken advantage of. If we never give our heart, it'll never be broken. If we never follow the Spirit, we'll never be subjected to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with the enemy of Christ. But that is exactly what happens when they are led by the Spirit. And we see how people of influence can be in positions of help or hindrance. Bar Jesus was a hindrance. But Paul, in the influence of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, was led, as we're told, and addressed bar Jesus, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'll ever wield power like that. I'm really not too concerned about it. Because we don't have to be. In whatever situation we are, if we lean and follow the Spirit, we'll get the guidance and the, and the leading that we need. I know that may sound like a reach, but as you walk with the Lord, you'll you'll get more comfortable with that. You will. What became of this proconsul? Because when he saw what the Spirit did through Paul and Barnabas, It says, he was astounded. That's real power. And he believed. And then it says that it was the teaching of Jesus, about Jesus. It wasn't Paul and Barnabas. It was they who they represented. It was him who they represented that the proconsul believed and was amazed at. What happened to him? We really don't know. You would expect a proconsul to show up a little bit, and in fact, uh, there is some evidence. In fact, at the beginning of the 20th century in 1915, William Ramsey, archaeologist, um, found several inscriptions with references not only to him but his family. And he says uh, he argues that he became a well-known uh, name in Christian circles. That his daughter, Sergio Paula, was a Christian. And then her son, unfortunately not her husband or the boy's father, but her son, C. Caristanius Fronto, a member of the prominent family of, of Pisidian Antioch, were all Christians. Kind of hard to hear all that uh, perhaps could be said if the inscriptions could speak. But there's something profound about a man who makes the way of the Lord straight in his own household, in his own family. Even though he's a proconsul and wields power in other realms, but his lasting legacy is the Lord in the lives of those of his own family. Dads want to do that. I don't know if you happen to catch, I watched the game uh, just this last week when uh, Matt Cain, who's a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants, a team I occasionally follow, Matt Cain pitched a perfect game. Now, a perfect game is a very rare thing. In fact, the perfect game this last week that Matt Cain pitched was only the 22nd in the history of Major League Baseball. I'll just let that sink in for a moment. Only 22 perfect games, that is, no hits, no walks, and no errors. It's like a no-hitter on steroids. But every pitcher knows that he doesn't get there by himself. In the seventh inning, the top of the seventh inning, the first batter, uh, the pitcher took him to a 3-2 and count, and then he hit a ball deep into the gap between right and center. And Gregor Blanco, the right fielder, ran. He got a good jump on the ball. He ran as hard as he could all the way to the warning track in center field, way out of position to get this ball. He dove and caught the ball. There would have been no no no-hitter, no perfect game, if Gregor Blanco hadn't caught that ball. He had wrote his blog, I read his blog this week, and just an excerpt about his family. He said, uh, he writes, My wife and almost two-year-old son were waiting up for me. She was upset she didn't come to the game that night, but I told her it was okay, because it was so loud, and the baby probably would not have been happy she told me that as I was interviewed on TV, the baby stared at the screen as if to say, that's my dad. He says, I'm going to go to the clubhouse manager to see if there's a ball or something from the game I can have. Wouldn't it be great to have the actual ball I caught and get Matt to sign it? That would be something special to pass down to my son. every father is strategic in the life of his family and his children i could produce psychological and sociological studies to prove this point but i think it's said best by a short story by ernest hemingway called the capital of the world in this story the father and son have a falling out the son has sinned against his father and in is so ashamed of what he's done that he runs away. His dad begins a search for his son when he doesn't come home, and he looks all over Spain. He is disheartened and dispirited because he can't find his son. He finally, in Madrid, decides to put an ad in the newspaper. The ad in the newspaper reads like this. Paco... Meet at Hotel Montana noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. The father prayed that his son would see the ad and maybe, just maybe, he would come to the Hotel Montana. On Tuesday at noon, his father arrived at the hotel and what he found he couldn't believe. There was a police squadron They'd all been called to keep order among the 800 young boys named Paco who had come to meet their father in the front of the Hotel Montana. 800 boys named Paco read the ad in the newspaper and hoped it was for them. 800 Pacos came to find the acceptance of the father they loved and desperately needed. You know... That's uh, This is Father's Day, but every Sunday is Father's Day. I mean, we, we want that from our Heavenly Father. But today we recognize that Heavenly, our Heavenly Father is uh, profoundly represented in the role and responsibilities and the unique and strategic location of a father in the life of his family. Um, Sergius Paulus, made an impact on his family, were led to believe. Uh, Because some men, some Jesus people, some regular guys, who just did what we can do each and every day, and that is, um, let Jesus be Lord of our lives, trust Him, walk with Him, depend on Him, uh, think about Him, pray to Him, ask for His leading, The Holy Spirit will show up in your life. He'll start doing things in your life. And you will have a presence of influence for Christ that will advance and promote who Jesus is in the eyes of others. Will you stand with me? Let me close this in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that You are sending out to all the Pacos of the world this message that uh, You want us to come home, everything's forgiven. Help us to model that in our own life, in the way we see others, see our world around us, and live for You. We love you, Lord. Bless the fathers in our midst. We thank you for them, for ours, for you, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.